Thank you very much. Can you hear me? I'm coming through. Thank you so much. John, something about the way you said good egg just then. It was as if you'd never said that phrase before and were slightly surprised that you'd chosen that moment to say, is that true? Do you ever, would you ever say that term? I just, I was lovely. It was really touching. I'm, I'm very much enjoying my first foray into High Wycombe on a Sunday morning. I said in the first service that when I arrived, the first sentence that someone said to me, I mean, somebody said hello on the way in, but the first sentence someone said was, do you know there's going to be a High Wycombe version of Monopoly? And I was like, oh, wow, you guys are just very proud to be here. I got upstairs, and within a minute or whatever of sitting down, someone had said the sentence, this is the most dangerous street in Buckinghamshire. <laughs> I was like... That's an extraordinary two facts to have picked up from my first few minutes in High Wycombe. It was delightful. So Neil and I, and John and I have known each other for a while. I don't know most of you, but it was, uh, yeah, it was, I didn't, I, you'd never told me that, Neil, about how dangerous this was. And yeah, so anyway, it's a joy to be with you. Um, if you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Luke chapter 16? Luke chapter 16. Um, we're obviously in this series, The King and His Kingdom. And we're going to look today at, at two extraordinary stories that Jesus told about money. And I use that word advisedly. They are extraordinary stories. I think the second one would have seemed completely extraordinary in the ancient world, but it probably won't seem that extraordinary to you for reasons we'll come on to in a few minutes. It will probably feel like the kind of thing that should happen in the second story. The first story, I think, will be extraordinary even to many of us. It was great fun talking about it in the first service and just seeing all sorts of particularly parents looking quite troubled at the fact that this story was in the Bible and that their children were hearing about it, because it is a very, very strange story with a very strange, what to us might sound, shocking lesson. We're going to read the whole of Luke 16, so it'll take a few minutes, but just to hear the, you know, the Jesus we've just been singing to and saying, hallowed be your name. This is what he says, and two parables he tells about the issue of money and possessions, which I think will help and challenge us as we consider them. Luke 16, verse 1. He also said to his disciples... There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what's this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil. He said to him, I'll take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. He said, well, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, or another translation, his wisdom. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. And if you have not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you haven't been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. 
Since then, the good news of the kingdom's preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone comes from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of God. Both of these stories are essentially about money and possessions, really. And what I want to do is to start by looking at the second one, because in some ways the message of it is easier and clearer, and then move to look at the very strange first one. But the second story, the rich man and Lazarus, is a, is a classic, the first shall be last and the last shall be first kind of story. And it shows what... If you're using theological language, you'd say the eschatological reversal, but the turning upside down of the world when the kingdom comes. That's what's being taking, taking place. That Jesus, when he comes as judge, is going to turn the world the right way up. That there is, it's a classic example of the genre, really. Very, very simple, almost told like a cartoon. There is a very rich man who feasts sumptuously every day, like almost, it's like a caricature almost of a very wealthy person. He wears purple clothes which in the ancient world is very expensive. I can see one or two sporting purple clothes today. There's nothing against purple clothes, but in the ancient world, that's a very rich kind of material um, and difficult thing to dye. And he's wearing fine linen, and the word linen is the word that you typically use for your undergarments. So you could say he is literally wearing fancy pants. Like he's Mr. Fancy Pants. He's like, it's, it's like a caricature. It's not that there is one man who necessarily does all of those things. Louis the Fourteenth. I don't know, whoever you think of, some sort of, big Philip Green. I'm not sure who you would think of like that very rich man. But this guy is that kind of cartooned up, right? So you have Mr. Fancy Pants, and then there is a poor man who lives at his gate, who is again almost like a caricature of an incredibly destitute poor person. Because he's, got, he's covered in sores and the dogs lick the sores. It's just a horrible graphic image. Jesus is using, as he often does in his stories, cartoon-like imagery. Very, very dramatic contrast here. And so this man is rooting around for scraps, rummaging through the bins, trying to find something to eat. And this man is feasting sumptuously every day. So it's the most graphic kind of contrast between rich and poor that was very prominent in the ancient world and, of course, still exists today. But there's a note of hope in the introduction when Jesus sets it up because he names the poor man. He speaks of him as Lazarus. He's the only person in the story to get a name. In fact, he's the only person in any of Jesus' parables to have a name. 
You ever notice that? It's not like the good Samaritan is called Frank or like the prodigal son's called Bill. There's no, the characters in Jesus' story don't normally have names, but this one man does. It's like, it's, it's a way of saying God sees the poor and he knows their names. Like if you are the most destitute, lowest of the low in society, God sees you and he sees your name. He knows your name. So there's a note of hope there. But then what happens is they die and everything is instantly turned on its head. They go from these extremes of contrast in this life to the extremes in the opposite life, in the opposite way, in the, in the next life. Lazarus goes to Abraham's side and finds perfect peace and rest. And Mr. Fancy Pants finds himself in torment in the fire. Now, I, just, I don't think this parable is teaching us about the literal nature of the afterlife, right? I don't think it is teaching us the doctrine of justification by poverty, that you go to heaven because you're poor or that you go to hell because you're rich. I don't think that. Otherwise, I'm in big trouble and so are most of you because in the terms of this parable, I'm very well off and so are almost all of us, I'd expect. And I also don't think that Jesus means us to think that there is literally conversations taking place between hell and heaven. Right? People go, oi! And they go, what? Can't hear you. And sending people. To, that, that's not what the story is communicating. The story is using that as a device to expose to us the contrast between the fortunes we face in this life and the fortunes in the next one, that great reversal in which the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And because that great reversal is coming, we are being urged to use our possessions, mindful of the fact that the rich will be poor and the poor will be rich in that sense in the next life. That really what matters is the way you will live in the world where Mr. Fancy Pants is down there and Lazarus is up there. That's what really matters because that's eternal in contrast to this life. That's what the parable's trying to communicate. Mr. Fancy Pants doesn't get it because he's down there and he's still summoning Lazarus to do something for him. He's saying, Abraham, just send Lazarus on an errand so he can come and make me feel better. You know, dip the finger in the water and so on. So he's still not aware of the consequences of his own sin. He's not aware that he doesn't have that power now. And that's one of the things that wealth does. Those of us who are wealthy, which again, in global historical terms, pretty much all of us are, we have to be so careful of this. Like, the parables show again and again the ways in which riches make people feel entitled. They do. They, they make you feel like, I've got power. I can do what I want. I want to buy something. I can get you to do something for me. From anywhere in the world, I'll just pay it. Right? And this man's still thinking like that because he's saying, hey, send Lazarus on an errand. And Abraham's saying, no, 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 it doesn't work like that now. A chasm's been fixed. You're done. Like, you, the way you used your wealth then has come back to bite you and you are in trouble now and you're not, you can't get out of it just by telling people to do what you want. And the central line in the story is actually not Lazarus's or the rich man's, it's Abraham's. Abraham in verse 25 says, and this is like a summary of the parable, remember you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus got bad things, but now he's comforted and you're in anguish. It's like a real world, it's like a parable version of the Magnificat, of Mary's great song. He has brought down the mighty from their seat and exalted the humble and meek. But it's like that turned into a parable. A great reversal is coming. Verse 15, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It's a very hard-hitting parable. Now, in the ancient world, it would have been completely shocking to his original audience. Because that is not how people in the ancient world thought at all. The scriptures are full of exhortations to care for the poor, yes, but at the same time, many of the heroes of the Old Testament were very wealthy. And actually, that's why 
you know, if you know what I mean when I use the term the prosperity teaching or prosperity gospel, those of us who know what that means, that's why there is an attraction to it. I don't, I don't think it's biblical at all. I think this story directly attacks it, actually. But that the reason why it's tempting is because there are, in the Old Testament, a lot of very wealthy people who get a lot of wealth and are very uh, faithful. And as a result, you could see how if all you had was the Old Testament, you might conclude material wealth is a sign of God's favor and poverty is a sign of curse. You can see how someone might conclude that with nothing but the Old Testament because Abraham was rich and Job after his suffering was rich and Joseph was prime minister of Egypt and all that. You can, you can see how it works, right? But of course, what Jesus is doing is taking an audience who have all of those stories in their thinking and then saying, I'm telling you, this is the way the kingdom looks. And it doesn't look like that. There's actually a challenge to that way of thinking. And so their society found that shocking. Because they go, hang on a second. What about all of these wealthy saints in the Old Testament? And Jesus is saying, first should be last, last should be first. The kingdom isn't like that. Now, our society doesn't find that parable so strange. In fact, our society probably feels like, yeah, rich man got what's coming to him. Greedy so-and-so, living in his fancy pants while there's a man begging at the gates. Because in our culture... Christian teaching has taken such root for so long that people generally assume that it is the duty of the rich to care for the poor. To the point that most of us don't even realize we assume that. We just think everyone thinks that. Of course, most people in history did not think that until Christianity. The ancient Greek world didn't think like that at all. They thought, no, if you're rich, that's a sign of honor. If you're poor, that's a sign of shame. It's not, there is not necessarily an obligation. You might choose to, but you'd probably do it in a sense of You'd be their patron, but it wouldn't be like you have got a moral obligation to care for the poor. But our culture is so Christianized that people think that's what everyone does that. That's what taxes are for, right? In fact, I mean, communism was an attempt to do that in an extreme way. And most of us vote, I expect, on the basis that, the, that people with wealth have a responsibility to provide care for people who don't. That's what the NHS is, that's what the school system is. And why? That's because our culture has been Christianized. But in the ancient world, they, wouldn't have, they would have thought this is bizarre. This is a shock that the rich man is experiencing that kind of suffering and the poor man has been honoured like that. Wouldn't feel right to them. The odd thing about this chapter, though, is that the first half of the chapter, the first story, still feels very weird to us. So we read the second half of the chapter, the rich man and Lazarus, and we think, That's, yeah, that kind of feels normal. The ancient word would go, ooh, what's going on here? But the first story about this dodgy fund manager dealer being held up as an example for us People today who have read this chapter still find baffling and shocking. And some of you did as we read it. Like, what? Was this in the Bible last time I read it? This is a really weird story. I've told, preached on this passage many times, and you often see people looking around going, I, I can't believe Jesus would say that. All right, so the story in the first half of the chapter is that you have this very, very wealthy man who has a fund manager. I'll call him a fund manager like, because that helps us in our world. I, I've got a few friends who, who do that. They manage funds for rich people. And that, that's, the, I guess, our closest equivalent. There's somebody who basically whose job it is to maximize the wealth of a much ri richer person, and they get paid maybe a commission for what they, how they grow the fund. And some of you may be involved in that, that kind of work. But this fund manager in Jesus' story is underperforming. We don't know whether he's crooked or incompetent at this point. But anyway, whatever the reason, he's underperforming. And so the rich owner says to the fund manager, you, you, you're going to have to clear out, clear out your desk. In fact, Friday, 5.30, I want you out of here. You won't be coming back. Here's a, there's going to be a P45. Um, but you've got a few days just to set your affairs in order before you go because you can't be manager anymore. 
And so this guy is told that, maybe sent an email, or Monday morning, you're out. Friday afternoon, you're clear. And what does he spend his week doing? He doesn't spend his time thinking, oh, I better make sure I really work to the finish line, which is what you and I might, I hope, would do in that situation. No, what this man does is he spends his time ringing up all of the guys who owe money to his master, the owner, and saying, um, hey, so, uh, John, tell me, what's the latest state of your bills, Again, with, with the, your debts? How much do you owe him? And they say, oh, you know, 100? And he says, oh, no, no, don't worry about that. Use my name. Change it to 50. I'll sign off on it. What? And then he rings up another guy and says, how many of you, how much do you owe? And he said, oh, I've got debts of here, like, uh, again, about 100. So, and he says, oh, no, don't worry about that. Change it. I, I'll, I'll 80. So, I, but I'm not. I owe him 100. No, don't worry about it. Use my name. It'll be fine. I'll sign off on it. And he does this all week, ripping off his master and making sure that he gets all of these guys who owe his master money to be in his corner so that when he's on the dole on Friday, come Friday evening, he's now got lots of people who owe him a favour. That's the story. Now that on its own is just a story about a scoundrel doing something that you shouldn't do. Except that what Jesus then does, and what completely makes us think, what the heck, is Jesus then says, I want you to learn from this man and imitate his wisdom. That's what happens in this story. It's just so weird. Right? The, 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 the cheating and ripping off is not especially strange. Right now, could be going on in Canary Wharf, for all I know. I don't know. Maybe something like this is happening. What is bizarre is that the punchline of the story is not, and this is an example of crooked behavior, and now throw the man down there with Mr. Fancy Pants. That's not what happens in the story. The punchline, verse 8, Jesus says, the master, the owner, the rich guy, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness or his wisdom. For the sons of this world, Jesus says, are more shrewd in dealing with one another than the sons of light. And I'm telling you, my disciples, you should make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, because it will, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. The dodgy fund manager who's ripping everybody off is being commended by Jesus in this story as an example of wisdom for you and me to imitate and learn from. What is going on? If you weren't troubled at the start, I hope you are now, as we just reflected on this story. And this is the Son of God speaking. Civilizations have been built on the teachings of this man. Like every time you write the date, you acknowledge the centrality of this man to world history. And here he is saying, oh, this dodgy fund manager... Wonderful example of wisdom in thinking about the... You think, what is going on here? Well, the fund manager is definitely in the wrong. Right? We should say that. He, he is crooked. Jesus calls him unrighteous. Jesus is not commending the, the stitching, of, stitching up of people and stealing from your boss and signing off on fake bills. That's not what's happening. And if you are one of those people, I think Jesus would say, that's unrighteous, stop doing it. Okay? There's lots of other things he teaches which would lead us there as well. And in this story, he says, that's unrighteous. But, we are, although we are not meant to learn from his behavior, we are meant to learn from what Jesus calls his wisdom or his shrewdness. We're supposed to learn something about the way that this man understood the perspective, if you like, that he had on the life he has now and the life he was going to have in the future. That's what I think this man is meant to model for us. The dodgy fund manager is meant to show us what it's like to live wisely in light of the coming future, or if you put it more simply, how to live now in light of then. That's what I think this man shows us. I'll try and show you why I think that's true. So in the book of Proverbs, for instance, a book about wisdom, if you know it, wisdom 
if I had to try and define what wisdom is in the book of Proverbs, I mean, the fear of the Lord, there's lots of ways you could say it, but practical wisdom in the book of Proverbs is effectively living now in light of then. So the wise man sows, you know, and works hard in the period when you're sowing your fields because he lives now working harder. He experiences suffering now, really long days, really hard work, in order that then he might reap a harvest. Or the wise parent disciplines her child or whatever, his child, now, which is much harder work. I have three young kids. It's much more tiring to discipline and train your children than just to let them watch whatever they want all day. But you work hard now in order that you might reap a reward then. That's the principle behind wisdom throughout the book of Proverbs. And so the idea of living wisely in the Bible is people who live in the present, mindful of the fact that the future is longer than the present and matters more. In contrast, the classic Old Testament fool is a man like Esau, who doesn't live regarding the future. In fact, he just cares about the now. He's like, who cares about my birthright? I want soup. Right? Give me a soup, give me a bowl of that stew or whatever it is. So he's a fool. And the whole point of the story is, to, well, one of the points of the story is to expose that and say, you and I attempted to do that. Let's have short-term gain regardless of the long-term loss. And Jesus, of course, is the opposite. Jesus goes through intense short-term suffering for the long-term everlasting gain of the joy set before him, which we've just been singing about. And so the Bible, is, the Bible often talks about wisdom like that. The idea of wisdom is living now in light of then and balancing the two against each other and recognizing the future is much more important in that sense than the present. It's actually a principle that underlies economics and interest and capital. It's why you know, it's the present value of money is greater than the future value of the same amount of money, all that sort of thing. It, it all comes out of this sort of idea. And I guess a more simple way of explaining it to a child is, which I have to use my kids, my, I've got a five-year-old, and he's at the age where he thinks his hand is bigger than the moon. Because you put your hand up like that, and he goes, look, Dad, my hand's blocked out the moon. My hand's bigger than the moon. Now, he, what he doesn't know is that, of course, I, he's probably getting the idea that his hand isn't bigger, but he's still fascinated by the idea. Of course, you're trying to say, Sam, no, your hand isn't bigger, it's just nearer. And, of course, what happens is you and I make decisions with our possessions all the time and think, this is a better use of money than that, or this is more important than that, and regularly scripture would call us back to that question. Is it better or is it just nearer? Does it seem bigger or more pressing because it's immediate as opposed to eternal in its impact? And what the dodgy fund manager in this story is doing is wise because he realizes that come Friday afternoon when he doesn't have a job and a desk and a business card and all the rest, He's got no, there's no point at all in any of his labor on behalf of the rich man because he's not got a job. He, all of that status is going. His life as he knows it is over. All he's got is a few days to maximize the benefit of the life he has now so that in the next bit of his life, from next Monday morning, he can, he's got friends who are going to owe him a favor. Again, it sounds a bit grubby, but Jesus is saying, you should live like that too. I want you, Jesus is saying, to recognize, to recognize what he's done is wise, even though it's not righteous, but there is a wisdom to it that you can learn from, which is that you also have your life as you know it is over within a few days, weeks, months, years. I don't know when it's going to be. The other day, a tree fell down in my garden in the winds you know, the day before yesterday. It crashed down. If it had fallen in a different direction or the tree in the front of the house rather than the back of the house had fallen down, crashed in, that could be my numbers up. I could be done for this life. I don't know how long I've got. And Jesus is saying, you've got to live with the understanding that your life as you know it is very nearly over, 
And that when it's gone, the only thing that will matter is not how much stuff you had now, but whether or not you have used the stuff you had now in order to invest in your future life, which begins next Monday, which begins the other side of that catastrophe you may face any time. And we all will, whether it's now or tomorrow or soon or the rest of your life. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to think like this dodgy man in many ways, not in the sense it's okay to stitch people up, but in the sense that you use the capacity you have now to invest in your future life and recognize that it is much bigger and longer and more important than your present life and act accordingly. Make friends for yourself by using your unrighteous wealth. And Jesus is saying, you've got to live like that. That's the application he brings in verse 9. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. When we were, I'm the oldest of four kids. When we were kids, we used to play a lot of Monopoly. Um, I don't know whether you guys are into Monopoly or not. I found it was kind of, there's a lot of conflict in Monopoly. And it's one of those quite slightly annoying games, isn't it? That about, what did you say, 15 minutes in, you kind of know you're not going to win. You go, it's basically, yeah, I think I'm just going to get the electric company. You know, that kind of, you, you, and it, but you still have to sit there and suffer in silence. And you can't then throw your weight around with your sister because she's got all the oranges already. So she knows she's going to win, but you have to grin and bear it. So I developed a tactic. Now, don't judge me. You will judge me. I saw, they did in the first meeting. But one of the things I realized, I was the oldest of four, and I could manipulate my brothers and sisters. And uh, my little sister Sarah is particularly very trusting, very sweet. Um, she's now sort of A&E matron in a London hospital. She's like one of those lovely, just brilliant people who just wants to serve and help people. And what I realized was that Sarah didn't really get that this was just a game and that I could offer her monopoly money in exchange for real money. And so what I could do is I could say, Sarah, I will give you £500 of Monopoly money if you give me your pocket money for this week in real life. Right? Sarah thinks it's a fantastic deal. It's a 500 to 1 return from her point of view. So she gets £500. She can buy Vine Street or whatever and have plenty left over. Meanwhile, I'm going, <laughs> because I know what she doesn't yet know, which is that in an hour or two hours, all of this gets folded up and goes back in the box at which point it doesn't matter whether you've got Vine Street. It doesn't matter how many of these you've got. The only thing that matters is that I've got her pound coin and she doesn't. Right? I am living, if you like, in the present in light of the future. Do you understand? This is like a modern version of that parable. So I'm living in the game going, that's not really where it's at. Like I know for now it feels like a very big deal. But actually it isn't, Sarah, because I know something you don't. It all goes back in the box. And when it does, the only thing that will matter is how I have used this time to maximize the money that comes to me in the real world. Jesus is saying, you've got to do that as well. You are living, I don't know how long you've got. You might have 90 years. You might, one or two of us in this room might live to 100. Right? That feels like a very long time when you're in the middle of the game. And this kind of money feels very valuable and precious. But I could do this. I could get Fine Street. I could get Leicester Square. I could get all of this. I'd buy myself out of jail in an instant. And it all feels very pressing until you are confronted with the reality that at the end of that 90 or 100 years, it all goes back in the box, and so do you. And that box goes into the ground or into a fiery tunnel in a crematorium somewhere near High Wycombe. And at that point, none of this matters. The only thing that matters is how much have you used what you had to invest in what really lasts, to invest in what Jesus calls true riches or eternal dwellings. If you like, the feeding of the poor the progress of the gospel to the ends of the earth, the establishment of the church, the seeing of justice in this age, the kingdom of God, 
How much of your money's gone there? That's, what, that's really what matters, Jesus is saying. And this dodgy guy, just like me, dodgy older brother, in all kinds of ways, they're not admirable characters at all. You guys, you, think, you all think I'm scum, right? You go, 10-year-old Andrew's a villainous person. I don't, can't believe they let him preach. But underneath it, there is a wisdom Jesus wants us to learn from, which is that you live with the kind of perspective that correctly weighs up how valuable the now is in contrast to the then. Or what Paul calls the light momentary afflictions in comparison with the weight of glory. And when you weigh them against each other, like putting your hand against the size of the moon, you conclude, that's much bigger than this and I want to put my money there and really get by here without needing to spend any more than I have to. I'm not saying you shouldn't spend money on stuff. Right? I, I said a tree fell down in my garden. So yesterday I had to sign off on £750 to get it removed and fences fixed and all that kind of stuff. It's like... And that's a lot of money, I think. And so just spending £750 in a day, I'm, I'm, so I'm not the guy who goes, oh no, you mustn't spend any money. But I, but I do think that in, in a sense, there is every decision you make financially, does it run through that filter? Come through and think, is this, am I investing in the hand or in the moon? Am I investing in the monopoly game? Or am I investing in the real world, the eternal wealth that Jesus would have me focus my attention to? And so he would have us use your paper money Use your dodgy fund manager contacts to make friends for yourself now because at the end of your life, it all goes back in the box and eternal life is all that matters. This is probably my favorite passage on money in the whole Bible. I just think it's so, so profoundly challenging and weird and makes people go, what's he doing? Why is he saying this? And as he concludes the story, he gives us three principles which will be a great relief to those of us who find the stories are doing their head in. Right? So some of us are going, story of rich man Lazarus and another dodgy fund manager. What's going on here? Jesus does, for a little bit, the more Western-minded of us, like, give me some bullet points, pastor. Jesus goes, it's all right, I'll do that as well. And he does, and he gives us just a few little one-liner principles that will help us. There are three in particular in verses 10 to 13. First is the faithfulness principle. The one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. That is a profound spiritual principle, not just a financial one. There is a strong connection between how trustworthy you are in handling little things like worldly wealth and how trustworthy you will be found when handling big things like eternal wealth. Right? So if you're faithful and generous with your money, that may or may not increase your worldly wealth. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't in reality. Isn't it? And some of us have experienced enormous blessing and sometimes you say, I've given a lot and I didn't immediately get it back. In fact, I never got it back. So it doesn't necessarily increase your worldly wealth, but it definitely increases your eternal wealth when you handle your finances wisely in the biblical way. So there's the faithfulness principle. The second is the stewardship principle, verse 12. If you haven't been faithful with what is someone else's, no one's going to give you what's your own. In other words, the money you have now, the paper money of this life, that's not yours. It belongs to somebody else. And at the end of your life, it's all going to go back to him anyway. You've all been given someone else's assets to look after, so your possessions are not yours but God's. So you've got to, you think of yourself, and so do I, as stewards of somebody else's money, as fund managers, in a sense, for somebody else, rather than some, you know, as if they're your, yours to own. So the faithfulness principle, the stewardship principle, and then in verse 13, the worship principle. No servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money which is to say that every time you make a financial decision, you are casting a vote in favor of Christ or mammon, or God 
and money. Those are your options. Now, sometimes you might think this is a morally neutral decision. I'm going to buy. It's absolutely great. Go and buy bread for lunch. Spend money if need be to get the tree taken out of your garden when it fell down in a storm. Whatever. Those, those things aren't, it's not like everything I'm doing, if it's not given to the church or something, is sinful. That's not the claim I'm making at all. But every time I make a financial decision, I can do it motivated by the worship of Christ or the worship of mammon, and I can't do both. I cannot serve two masters. It's impossible. And if you live that way, seeing finances as a moment to worship one or other of those gods, God or money, it will not only transform your financial life, it will transform your spiritual life as well. In this life, you and I are all basically playing Monopoly with my sister. We have the opportunity daily to invest our paper money in things that last forever. Through serving the poor, through faithfulness, through stewardship, through worship, through evangelism, through justice. All of these things, they are ways of investing what we've been given in the game in something that lasts forever. That doesn't mean we never buy material things. That's how you stay in the game. Sometimes you need to buy things in Monopoly just to stay in it. But it does mean that you make every decision now in light of then, and it means that as you do those things, you are living in imitation of the great forerunner, Jesus Christ, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned the shame. He said, this small term, this small time, temporary affliction I'm experiencing is achieving for me a weight of glory and joy the salvation of the world, including you. And because I want to live with the future in mind, I'm going to scorn the cross in order to be seated at the right hand of the, of the Father and gain the joy that was set before me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and thank you for his extraordinary, his mind-bending teaching, really, his ability to just understand what, how humans work and to just skewer straight to the heart of the, the idols we have and the issues we face, and yet who not only taught with insight and brilliance, but who also lived like nobody else ever lived, who totally put his life on the line, who gave up everything for other people, who actually put into practice all of the strange and challenging things he said, and in going to the cross, modelled for us what it looked like to live for the glory of God and nobody else. We thank you so much for him. We worship him. We worship you, Father. We thank you for the spirit who has been given to us to transform us into his likeness. And we pray that even as we respond in worship, adoration, and financial contribution, you would move among us, you would conform us to the likeness of your son, and we pray these things in his name. Amen.